Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. This is segment number 10. As most stories, there's a whole lot more than meets the eye, and that's what we're talking about right now. Uh, Chuck, I believe this is going to be a continuation of Fordism. Yeah, last week we talked a bit about uh, Henry Ford and the philosophy that he developed, much of which was rooted in his ardent anti-Semitism. And uh, this week we're going to go a little further into that to see where it leads us. Without any further delay, Dr. Chuck, take it away. Thank you, Joe. Now, Henry Ford did have his detractors, ranging from such notables as A.J. Musty, the founder of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, folks down in Nyack, remember that was referred to as the F.O.R., and Ralph Borsodi, American decentralist, and uh, Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World. And then there was Father Coughlin, the radical priest, the critic of the New Deal. These were men of social and literary concern, but they were not the general public not the common working class that Ford resonated with. Still, each of them attacked Ford critically in areas where he was weak and easily exposed. Musty, for example, early on, applauded Ford's stewardship of the workforce and his avowed anti-militarist posture in the pre-war years back in World War I, but over time he found fault with Ford's anti-Semitism. Borsodi opposed Fordism with its reduction of skilled labor in the workforce and the melding of human labor with machinery, as did Huxley, who criticized the top-down hierarchy model as akin to Mussolini's corporate state. But it was Father Coughlin, the radio priest, a rabid anti-Semite himself, who brought unwanted critical attention to Ford. Coughlin's first public appearance was by request of Hamilton Fish Jr., conservative Republican congressman and crusader against communism. This was in Detroit, where Fish held hearings on the subject of domestic subversion. Fish asked Coughlin to comment on the threat of subversion in the American workplace. And much to Fish's surprise, Coughlin announced in the hearing room, the greatest force in the movement to internationalized, that is, communized labor throughout the world is Henry Ford. He believed that Ford and industrialists like him were driving workers toward socialism. Coughlin's own anti-Semitic ravings did not fully surface until his public influence faded in the late 1930s. Although earlier on, he ruminated about the predominance of Jewish influence among the international bankers and referenced the money changers changers and the sin of usury. Still, Ford carried on with his damnation of union management, his distrust of collectivism, and wholesale blaming of the world's woes on a religious population. Whereas Coughlin had lost the public spotlight, Ford faced the Second World War with renewed vigor, but his vision was over. Believing that he was above the law, he told the New York Times that the same subversive wire pullers were behind the labor unions. He hired a motley assortment of ex-prize fighters, wrestlers, and ordinary parolees to search workers entering his plant for union literature. If a union card was found, the man was flogged with blackjacks or lashed with windshield cords. From 1937 to 1941, 4,000 Ford workers were fired for suspicion for union sympathies. And then, in 1941, more than 50,000 men at the Highland Park and Rue plants walked off the job. 
Ford said he was being persecuted by the Jews and threatened to close the plants down, with his wife, Clara, threatening to divorce him. He left the negotiations to his son, Etzel, and a contract was finally signed. During the Second World War, Ford continued to walk a fine line between political factions. In 1939, the Ford Werk AG plant was opened as a German company with ownership maintained by Ford Motor USA. By 1941, this plant produced 1,000 trucks per month, along with passenger cars for the Werkmacht and the SS. Three-ton trucks produced for the German Army came from the Ford Werk plant. Meanwhile, back in the States, this lost Ford a multi-million dollar truck-building government defense contract. But in England, the Ford Degenham plant continued to produce Jeeps, aircraft motors, and medium tanks. You see, Ford's arsenal of democracy was also an arsenal of fascism. When asked what he felt about the outcome of the war, he said he hoped neither side wins, because both sides meant that there was good capitalism going on for Henry Ford. Ford passed on only a couple of years after the war, and while it was known that he wanted to build a new northeastern plant, it is doubtful that he ever knew of the Mawa site in Ramapo. Ford Motor Company actually initiated plant development further south in New Jersey. But with the advance of the New York State Thruway, crossing the Hudson River, plowing through Rockland County up to the Ramapo Valley at the edge of the New York-New Jersey state line, Mawa became the ideal location. The then Erie-Lackawanna Railroad, with a freight yard in the villages of Suffern and Hilburn, along with Thruway access, was made to order for an auto plant. In addition, there was a potential workforce among the rural and suburban population, a workforce that included a diverse mix of ethnicities and cultures, white, of English, Irish, German, and Italian descent, African, American African, that is, with some roots in the southern states and other descendants of colonial landowners, and Indians, the descendants of the great Lenape Nation. By 1947, vehicle owners paid out more taxes for the purchase of new vehicles than any previous year in the history of the industry, a total of $2,914,000,000. The record increase in tax collections from vehicle users was due to two factors, increased registration of vehicles and an increase in the aggregate vehicle miles traveled. By 1948, interstate highway improvement accelerated as a result of the pressure produced by the ever-growing production of motor vehicles. Cities built expressways to permit a safe and uninterrupted flow of traffic. The modern highway progress was characterized by the development of hauling and grading machines, all powered by fossil fuel. The federal government, flush with tax revenue and registration fees from the increase in motor vehicle ownership, doubled their investment in road improvement and new interstate highway construction. The decade of the 1950s saw the greatest expansion of highway construction to date, exceeding all previous levels. With the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956, the role of the federal government in this expansion was greatly enhanced. By 1957, the federal government cooperated with the states in planning a record volume of highway work both improvement of existing roads and construction of new highways. Attention centered on the program for interstate and defense highways, multi-lane expressways to connect the 48 states and all the cities with a population of 50,000 or more, 
for interstate vehicular transportation, commerce, and potential movement of troops and defense equipment. By the end of fiscal year 1957, the National System of Interstate and Defense Highway Contracts were awarded for 561 projects. So the building of the National Highway System, primarily a boon for the oil and automobile industry, was justified as a Cold War action. This paving of America led to an exponential growth in automobile ownership. With the further post-war expansion of suburbia, an ever greater dependency on individual auto travel produced the two-car family. And as the family grew, so did the number of automobiles per family. By the 1960s, housing stock accustomed to a single attached garage now offered a two-car bay. With little oversight, the auto industry continued to base their paint compounds with lead. Given the free and open use of leaded gasoline, there seemed little reason to question lead contained in a surface or under a coating finish. During the 1950s, this industry furthered its use of potential contaminants with the wonder compound of the mid-20th century, plastic. During the latter half of the 1940s, plastic compounds were utilized in interior design components. Saran, produced from chloride polymers, were a staple in auto seat covers. Acrylics were used extensively for horn buttons, stoplight lenses, and other decorative parts. Nylon was the favorite material for bearings, bushings, gears, rivets, and coil forms. But an important advance in nylon itself was the advancements of a series of standard colors for molding powder. The growing chemistry in synthetic paints was well underway in the post-war years. Xylene, a component of paint thinner, was found to be a good base for plastic products. Vinyl acetate vinyl copolymers were adopted in superior finishes for household appliances. Styrene drying oil copolymers proved to be excellent paint vehicles containing equal parts of styrene and drying oil. Plasticizers were in use throughout the 1940s, advanced for war production. Some of these compounds furthered industrial needs during peacetime. The phthalates, such as dimethyl ethyl phthalate and diethyl phthalate, are just two of the family of solvents and plasticizers that demonstrated carcinogenic impacts on living systems, but still found their way into industrial use. Toxicological literature was scant but not absent during this time. A standard handbook used by industrial research scientists was a 1938 German publication, Toxicology and Hygiene of Industrial Solvents, that offers extensive background into rates of worker exposure, animal, and human studies. Apparently, Germany of the 1930s had advanced industrial processes such that there was a genuine concern as to the impact of solvents on human health. One can only speculate as to the conditions under which such studies took place. In the foreword to the 1943 English translation of this book, it is noted, The physical properties of solvents, especially their volatility and diffusibility, if they are toxic, render them the most potent source of health hazard. It is important, therefore, that adequate information on this most widespread and potentially harmful type of chemical be available to all concerned with conservation of health. The rapidly growing automobile industry of the 1950s brought together, along with leaded paint, 
a host of potentially carcinogenic chemicals wrapped up in the vehicle that transported Americans along endless miles of highway construction. And in the Ramapo Valley, Ford was foremost in this effort. So now the worm turns. We actually get to see what the components of this misery really are, and it don't sound good. Man. No. No. The, the, the tricky thing here is that, to me, a significant piece of this is that, that last reference, the toxicology and uh, hygiene of industrial solvents. This is a book that took 10 years to write in Germany and was based on worker exposure. And when you read that book, and it was a hard book to read, I happen to know that that is a book that's in the uh, research library at DuPont. And so all these fellows had access to that book because it was the only good toxicology study for solvents exposure. When you read that book and you read the levels of exposure and what the effects are on, on human beings, on their hands, on their, uh, on their, on their eyes, just to explain what happens when the fumes, the aerosols get into their eyes and you get down to the details of what's happening in their lungs. And the, these are explained in animal studies and human studies and all that sort of stuff. And you're reading it and then all of a sudden you're kind of horrified because they even have data on what happens when people ingest this stuff. Who do you think were the people that they studied who ingested this stuff in Germany in the late 1930s? The Jews. Yeah. Of and, course. And you're reading this and you're realizing, <laughs> my God, the handbook on the solvents exposure came from where and who it was based on. And all of our chemical industries have used that handbook and they've pretty much neglected the warnings that the handbook had. It's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah. This is also a part of the history. You know, when you learn this history, it's important because, again, we talked last week a little bit about CRT. Uh, When you learn these things have happened in the past, you're, I hope, perhaps less apt to pursue similar actions in the future. Yes, again. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you learn the negative things we did in the past, maybe we become a better people in the future. That's the hope, right? There is nothing wrong. There's nothing shameful about teaching our children history and to figure out a better way. And that's how we've always figured out a better way is uh, once they get caught, then they take action. It gets to a place where, I mean, take Rachel Carson. Everything she wrote about in Silent Spring and published in 1962, everything that she wrote about primarily came, I'm pretty much all of it came from colleagues, from research scientists who'd been working on these substances and studying the effects of these substances for the better part of 15 years by then. That means there was a scientific community that collectively already knew this stuff. It just hadn't been put together in a package and offered to the public yet. And of course, she was vilified for doing this by industry. But she was a hero, of course. She was a great hero for all of us. But people knew. People already knew this stuff. But these people that that knew kept their jobs. You know, they they were caught up in that. And it was, it's, it's wrong. But at what point do we declare it wrong? How many people need to die before we declare it wrong? Exactly. That's what perplexes me. There was certainly an awareness of this danger. Ford certainly had the money and the wherewithal to dispose of these chemicals in an appropriate manner. 
why didn't they do it? I just, I can't understand why this behavior was so simple for them. I think one of the reasons, and it comes back to um, racism and bigotry, is who it's affecting, who it's making sick, what people, what race it's making sick, whether it's the indigenous or the African-American. It always seemed to be, we're okay. As long as we're healthy, they can go work in these factories. You are right. Environmental injustice primarily targets the the, uh, marginalized or demonized people and so forth. But the thing about impacting upon the environment, it eventually knows no boundaries. Right. It knows no barriers. So when you see those people becoming ill, you can know they're the canary in the, in the miner's cavern. They get ill first. That's what's coming your way. And yes. when we get to it down the road in these episodes and we talk a bit about um, Ringwood and what's happening with the Turtle Clan up there, their waters, their soils that have been contaminated, it's migrating from those soils to the Wanaku Reservoir. You've got a million users. I mean, this is fundamentally significant. They're, they're of all walks of life. And this is, this is just coming their way. And once it gets there, unfortunately, that seems to be when real action is taken. Maybe. maybe. I, maybe. Still, I, still, depends. I still don't know. It may depend on the tax bracket. If they're in a high enough tax bracket, larger homes, that's when... Well, the thing, the thing about that is if your large water supply gets contaminated and it requires a high-end screening system or a filtration system, it get, comes out of the ratepayer, which means the cost of it will get spread across the population, which means ultimately the folks who are, we'll call them the working class at this point, not the, not the 1%, are putting in much more money in terms of what's coming out of their pocket than the folks who are the 1%, the the richer folks, to clean up the water that the richer folks very often were the investors of the problem that contaminated the water to begin with. So, So, yes, you're right. At some point, something gets done. But it'll, it'll come out of the trough of the ratepayer fee or it'll come out of the trough of, like we say, with Superfund, it would come out of the trough of the, what the taxpayer can you know, sanction off towards that project. Right. Going after the actual polluter, which to me is, is justice in America, with Ford, as you'll see in these episodes, we do on the New York side of the contamination of the watershed, but on the New Jersey side, and we'll call it for what it is, where the local politics are much more corrupted, as it, as it turns out, we, we can't go after them. You know, we, we do, but we're not having success. And Ford is getting away with it. And literally, literally, I'm jumping way ahead to episodes way down the road, but literally uh, a CEO from Ford once said to me in one of our sessions, our stakeholder sessions, in one of those sessions, he literally said to me, well, you know, while this may be happening here. This is when we'd moved along to a level of remediation. Don't think this is going to happen across the border. Hmm. It's the same pollution. It's, yep. In fact, across the border, there's more of it than is here. And people are living on top of it across the border. Here it was in the corridor leading, the repairing corridor leading to the well field. Over there, they're literally living on top of it. So it depends upon the municipality, too, and well, the people's the Yeah, they play a hand in it. And if they don't play the hand well, then it can stop right there. You can take advantage of them backing up on Jeez. it. Right. I mean, you can win in New York. And lose in New Jersey. someone else needs to win yes. in New Jersey. So a whole other argument has to happen, even though 
the answer has already been found. Well, I said to that CEO, and, you know, it's the same story. Right. And he said, no, it's not. It's different people. <laughs> but he wasn't talking about the victims. He was talking about the local municipal government that he had to deal with. Well, you know, I have an example that oh. plays right into this that's affecting my life and my wife's life. First of all, 40 years ago, I got married to a gal by the name of Karen DeMattis. And, uh, shout out to Karen. Shout out to Karen. And, you know, this is somebody who was born and raised in Vermont for one whole summer. Her and her uh, mom and dad and brothers lived in tents on the side of a beautiful, beautiful hill in Vermont as they built their own house. Literally, they built their house. Nice. And uh, nice. Oh, it was yeah. just beautiful. And uh, so she's tough. She yep. can handle. Yep. She can handle the weather. She, she handles things much better than I do. Uh, but she is... Definitely a canary in the coal mine. When Karen walks into a room that has been freshly painted with right. you know high quality paint, her throat closes up. Mm -hmm. It it happens. I've mm -hmm. seen it happen. It's very disturbing and uh, very worrisome. That's the off gassing of the VOCs in that high quality paint. There's yes. only there are only right. certain paints that she could actually work with. That's right. There was a time when I thought, well, how bad could this be? I and mean, come on, it. it's yep. Benjamin Moore paint. You know, yep. like, really, how bad could this be? It's bad. Yep. It's bad. And some people are much more affected by it than others. So anyhow, to, to, to get to the background story here, we have a fellow who in Warwick, New York, uh, was a polluter. He dumped uh, construction waste in certain far-off little spots of Warwick. His where own he little thought, Ford. His own little Ford thing. Yeah, yeah. where he thought nobody would look. Mini Eventually, he was found out. He was prosecuted. Nothing has happened to this guy. Nothing. What did he do? He was prosecuted and told, you can never do this here again, and if you ever do this here again, this is what's going to happen to you. Everything. He kind of shrugged his shoulders. He said, okay, I'm going to do it in Vernon. And he did it in Vernon. Yep. about 300 yards from the west-south corner of my property. If I walk 300 yards through the woods, I will reach his disposal area. If you look at it from Google Maps, you can yeah, see you his disposal me. area, yep. okay? Disposal now, area. finally, our congressman was able to resolve this and get on top of it and, and get some action. Took a long time to get the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection to do a damn thing. We had to demonstrate in front of their offices, but we finally got something done, but he's still running around free. Yeah, but there you go, uh, you know, did it in New York, then he came over into New Jersey. Uh, Pennsylvania's right down the road. Just go over to High Point. Is that going to be his next dumping ground? Sure. It seems that's a big... It's um, a lucrative business. And it, but it's also a big problem with our whole country. A state or a city fights for something, gets the answers, figures everything out and what it's doing, and yet the person can move to the next state and... They can't just grab that information from them and say, see, no, they have to go through it all over again. And eventually, and eventually what they can do is if they are finally caught, they can declare Chapter 11, go into bankruptcy, right. and they can, you know, pay a fine. These guys know how to play this, this well, game. Well, we have too many lawyers. But these are tough calls. These are tough yeah. calls. And, and Uncle Mao, God love him. You know, my, my favorite, favorite uncle, wonderful storytelling uncle. But, you know, he had, he had, he was flawed. He was a human and he was flawed. And one of his flaws was around lead paint. And I remember him railing, railing in the paint shop that lead paint was the best and safest damn product 
in the world because he didn't want to have to paint with water-based paints because the water-based paints didn't hold up as well. Resistance to, you know, exterior paints, resistance to weather. And uh, he... Now, we learned, literally, uh, Alice Hamilton, we'll talk about this later, in England, had her research had shown how dangerous lead was to the developing mind and to bone structure as early as 1922. And all the free nations of the world, let's repeat that, the free nations of the world banned the use of lead paint long before our country finally dragged its ass around to it, right around 1970. And by then, Mal in their 60s could hear that was coming. But we took such a long time to do that because the lead industry in America, the LIA, worked successfully at campaigning in magazine literature, slickbacks, newspapers, and on television and radio about the safety, the hygienic safety of lead paint and they would particularly target children and say the safest thing you can uh, uh, surface that you can seal a child's toy with is lead paint. They were saying this while other nations of the world, France, England, Sweden, were saying, what the hell are they doing over there? Don't buy American products. They've yeah. got lead in. They were saying this in, in the 50s and 60s. And then probably because of the cost to American exports and to the health arguments that were now being successfully made in terms of litigation lead eventually gets um it gets and it's and it's which president nixon actually right. signs the first uh, well we'll get to that later but um but there you go like, yeah. the, the battle it took all that many years and people knew and saw and uncle mal you know uh, when we had to repaint his house in the 1970s because of a fire in the late 1970s and i'm working on it with him and he says my only regret is it's not lead we're putting on these walls yeah yeah you hang on to this stuff i know i know well you know i'm let me close with this one memory that i have of you know back in our day we remember cigarette commercials all the time yep. you know on tv yep. Yep. and and in magazines you know you can't do that anymore but I can remember in Life Magazine, doctor's favorite cigarette is yep. Chesterfield. <laughs> yes. They satisfy. They it, yes. literally say <laughs> three <laughs> out of four doctors yeah. smoke Chesterfield because actors. it's got a smoother. And they, it, they were real doctors. Yeah, and yeah. magazine's they, holding this cigarette. It would yeah. also say that, you know, Chesterfield's, make, uh, they're smoother on your throat, which basically was saying, oh, it hurts your throat to smoke. <laughs> But rather than say that, these are the smoothest. I, I, I have a classic ad that shows the T-zone. Do you remember that? They would call it the T-zone. And <clears throat> it showed this beautiful woman in the ad. Of course, it's a woman because you're selling sex as well. Right. And there's a woman in the ad, and she's holding the cigarette, and the T-zone marks out the throat. No, no, the mouth. And then wow. the throat. So the T-zone, the top your of the teeth. T is your mouth, your teeth, your gums, your tongue, which are made safe by a good tobacco and then the throat going down that's the the, the stalk of the tea oh. and they were calling it the t-zone and they were saying doctors <laughs> advise taking care of the t-zone with a chesterfield king oh, <laughs> i'll tell you you can still hear these commercials every once in a blue moon if like me you listen to radio classics on xm yeah uh, because they enjoy every once in a while playing a very old commercial and they will play a Chesterfield commercial. And that's where I heard the doctor commercial. Yeah. Yep. So, Amazing. I'm going to check it out. And yep. with that, farewell for this week. Thanks so much, everybody for joining us. 
What are we going to talk about next week, Chuck? Well, next week we're going to carry on the last section of the uh, chapter on Fordism, and we're going to talk about its psychological construct of Fordism plays into our industry and into our way of thinking. So it literally plays into our homes, bringing us through the 50s into the 60s, and then we have the dumping. Sounds very interesting. So we'll see you next week on Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And Tommy Serino, who's here. He's yeah. the other voice. That's right. The <laughs> voice in the wilderness. In the wilderness. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. We'll see you next week. for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions? and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652, montgomerybookexchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.